You're listening to the Grow Further Podcast, dedicated to helping you on your journey to get from where you are now to where you want to be. I'm Chris. And I'm Ellie. And we're your hosts. Grow further with us, starting now. All right, y'all, this is a special episode. Today, we have the honor of introducing a true space pioneer and legend, Dr. Michael Fole. With a career spanning more than three decades, three decades, Ellie, Michael Fole is an accomplished astronaut, astrophysicist, and engineer who has dedicated his life to space and science. He's flown on six space missions, is known for his role in saving the Mir space station, and has logged over 374 days in space. Like he spent over a year in space. That's unreal. And you know what? He continues to share his passion even today with the next generation of space explorers. He's still an active member of the space community. And it's our pleasure to have him on the show today. Today, he's going to share his experiences around the value of empathy, the importance of believing in yourself, and how you can stay focused on your goals despite obstacles and challenges. And he has faced quite a few. So let's just jump right into this conversation with Dr. Michael Full. Okay. Well, Mike, we are excited to have you. We are excited to talk to you. Um, You're one of the most well-known astronauts, or I should say former astronauts out there. And so we have some questions for you. We'd love to start with, why did you want to be an astronaut? It was when my mother took me to the World State Fair in Minneapolis, St. Paul, when I was about six years old. And uh, there was an exhibition of um, robots, aircraft, John Glenn's capsule that had orbited the Earth, and a model of the space shuttle. Wow. My mother asked me, do you want to be an astronaut? And I said, what's an astronaut, mommy? And she pointed to John Glenn's capsule, which was like a trash can that had been burned up by somebody. Um, <laughs> and then she said, so that flew in space and it's the first American to orbit the earth. And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that, mommy, because I was looking at that. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to yeah. be in that. No, yeah, no so, thank you. <laughs> and it was the, real, th- it was the real, real deal. It was the real thing. And then my mother, um, again, very formative in my life, gave me books on space and specifically astronomy. My grandma did, American grandma then um, I read it as a, you know, eight-year-old or something and developed the interest. And then science fiction helped push it along. Question on this, Mike. Do you feel like you're, like some of our dreams and ambitions reside within our DNA? Or do you think it's through the experiences that you had that attracted you to it? Or do you think it's a combination? Well, I think we, this is deep philosophy, but I would say I think there's something in our DNA that makes us wonder about the cosmos or wonder about, you know, the stars and space and distance. And uh, I think there's something in our DNA that makes us want to explore um, because I think it's a survival trait. So that said, looking up at the stars and the color of the stars and thinking when you actually become a, aware that there might be aliens or beings there, um, other places to explore, then all of a sudden, you know, your imagination takes off. And that's a fire that drives you to become an astronaut, for example. Wow. And this could be a whole other episode, but I wonder if in order to have that sort of childlike wonder, or I think we all have it as children, but in order to continue to grow up as an adult with that, with that same amount of curiosity, I feel like mm-hmm. you definitely need to embody a growth mindset. And think about the fact that there is more 
out there. You have to really think beyond yourself. But, you know, Mike, I, I, I've been told, and, and I know this is not just a rumor, that it's not easy to become an astronaut. And, you know, I'm sure that throughout <laughs> all of our lives, you know, we've all been encountered with someone who told us that we couldn't do something. So did you ever have someone tell you you couldn't do it? And how did you overcome that? I applied to join the Royal Air Force when I was 16. I was rejected because I had messed up the um, the eyesight test. It was a, a weird thing. And oh. It wasn't real. But I was devastated by it, in tears on the phone, calling my father to tell him what had happened. Because I thought that was my route, becoming an astronaut. And so then I went, I decided to focus on my... Um, physics and electronics hobbies and other things. I was a bit of a nerdy boy and um, went to Cambridge University, England, uh, Queen's College to study physics. And it was there, as I um, told people I wanted to be an astronaut, people basically just laughed and said, ha, you know, because they wasn't really in the in their realm of possibilities. One, the UK didn't have a program. Two, they didn't know much about the US program. And three, they just didn't think anybody could become an astronaut because they knew that a very, very small fraction of people could be selected. So I had to deal with that. So after a while, I just stopped talking about it and um, just pressed on. So I love that. I love you said something a little nuanced there. You said that you thought that that was your only route to becoming an astronaut. And obviously, that wasn't the only one. So what a great lesson in resilience of when an obstacle presents itself and you realize that, you know, that's not the only one you, you keep on going. And that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. Yes, Ali, you put your finger on it. I think there was some resilience involved. Um, I was devastated at the age of 16. I thought about, well, what else can I do in life? <laughs> and it was kind of <laughs> bleak. <laughs> oh. So I, I looked at the, you know, I thought of becoming a geologist. I wanted a job outside of the office, but I focused on my interests, yeah. um, which were gliding, flying. I, could, I learned to glide when I was 15 years old, um, which is like flying a plane without a motor. And then um, I... I did scuba diving. And then in the middle of my PhD, I became aware that the space shuttle program was advertising for non-military astronauts. And then, you know, another light bulb went on. I said, oh, that could be me. And so I then realized that my, my interests had helped um, pad out my resume to become an applicant. And so I took a trip to NASA at, in, the, in the last six months of my PhD write-up. Um, in 1981, knocked on the door there. Um, they were very polite, very, very welcoming, and they gave me tours of the Johnson, NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston. And it was there I said, well, can I be an astronaut? They, um, they said, no, <laughs> no, not right now. I said, they said, go back and finish your PhD um, and then come back. So I came back uh, with it written up and they <clears throat> couldn't hire me at NASA, but I, they suggested that I went to a NASA contractor to work on space shuttle navigation, which was kind of dull and not really my field in physics, but it's something I could do. And they just said, look, if you do that, you'll gain operational experience in how the space shuttle flies, which was correct. And uh, so I did that for a year. And then after a year, I was fully hired at NASA as a mission control operator, monitoring the cargo, the payloads that we carried on the space shuttle. And, um, uh, I, I started my first application to become an astronaut, and I was rejected. 
And then the next year, <laughs> but I was selected for interview, which was a huge, a huge statement of interest by NASA. But it was the third, the third attempt in 1987 after I, after the Challenger accident. But um, out of that, they then selected, uh, they put, announced another astronaut selection, and I was now 30 years old. Oh, wow. So how long did it take from your first application to when you got in? So about five years. So, and so they only did that, a selection like every two years. And then Challenger Aston stopped the program for a year and a half. And so I get to this third interview and they said, OK, what's new? And I said, I've got, you know, it's kind of hard to answer. You've been there twice already. I said, well, um, going to get married. And they go, really? <laughs> Who'd marry you? So I explained who would marry me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. So, but the key here is it started to show some maturity in, uh, in their eyes of what I was becoming, you know. And so, to that extent, and that less selfishness. Let's put it that way. Well, um, and more and more uh, more personalization, right? They they felt maybe they felt like they got to know you as a person and. One of the things that I think makes the astronauts that we know here in the U.S. very unique is that you get to know them as people. You feel like they're your friends because they're so they're on this stage, right? They're in front of the public. And I think there needs to be a little bit of a sense of uh, I of the ability to build a very special connection with the public. And maybe that's what they saw, too. I hope. Well, I don't believe that's true, Ellie. (laughs) The one thing I am in, I am never happy doing is public speaking, but I can speak to a group. So there's definitely what I consider a close group and and, and honestly. So maybe that came across, but to a public, I hate it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I still do. (laughs) There's so many people that can relate to that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, What do they say? It's the number one fear. Yeah. You'd rather die than (laughs) speak in public. Some people. I I forgot my lines in the school play at the age of 12 and never forgot it. (laughs) What play? My goodness. It was Round the World in 80 Days. Do you know uh, your lines now? Could you recite them now? No way. No way. (laughs) Wow. Can, Can I pause and jump in really quick before we keep on? Because there's so much... There's so many things here that's relatable to so many people. Applying for a job, not getting it. Applying again, not getting it. What was the key to maintaining your motivation while people were laughing at you, while people were saying that you could not do this, and those people that interviewed you ending up not choosing you twice? What was the key to maintaining your motivation during that time? I still believed in my own growth, right? So I believed I could improve my chances of flying in space, either by being a government astronaut and convincing them to select me. Mm-hmm. But I was running out of new things to add to my resume in that third try. I was already a helicopter pilot. I was already a pilot. I was already instrument rated. I was already, you know. So you were growing as a result of trying. So it's not like the setback threw you back all the way. But I always had the faith that I could grow. And I think that's key. If, if I had Belief been depressed. in yourself. Yeah, yeah. If I had been depressed or really knocked down, um, that might not have happened. I think we let others... You know, opinions of us and beliefs sometimes, I think that we can let that uh, seep into our skin yeah. where we can start to undermine and let others' disbelief in us start our own disbelief in ourselves. Yeah. And you know what else, Chris? The other thing that this makes me think about and remember is that professional growth is great, 
but the that needs to be coupled with personal growth. So, Mike, what what adventures mm-hmm. and journeys did you take in your personal growth as you were continuing to build your resume? You know, you said you said you had faith, and if you didn't have faith, then you might not have you might not be here right now. How did you continue to foster and hone in on that resilience, that motivation, and that faith that you speak of? There was one final piece to me being selected in that interview, which was the essay. In the essay, I thought, well, what am I going to say? You know, I've said it twice before. So I wrote down in the essay, I said, you know, um, I still believe, you know, traveling into space is part of human's destiny. I think it's essential that we do it. But the key for me personally is being part of a team that's doing something that I believe is so important, but mm-hmm. doing it with others. And we're all struggling and sometimes mostly succeeding, but having to overcome our failures, working together in a team with other people. That's what I've learned. Um, and that's what I want to be a part of, I said in the essay. I've never had direct feedback on that essay, but I believe that essay is the one that made it for me because that is what had changed. I had one was getting married, as Ellie points out, is, is a growth thing. And second, um, I had realized the value of working with other people. I mm. don't think I had really understood that coming out mm-hmm. of Cambridge University as a PhD. I was very sort of self-oriented, developing myself, but I wasn't into developing my relationships with other people until so, that age. That's a really good point because – that's one of the things that that really set you apart in your career, right? I mean, I, I know that having heard your story, there was a big barrier to overcome in the way you needed to work with those on the International Space Station that you were going to be living with and doing research with. So can you tell us a little bit about, about that journey? How did you really use your insights about making sure that you grew your ability to work with others to develop this relationship with people who really didn't think too fondly of you to begin with? So I think the place where I had the most challenge and the most growth was when I was sent to the Russian Mir space station in 1997. There were two aspects going on here. I um, I was confident in my own abilities. I'd already flown in space three times and done a spacewalk and stuff. Um, I But one thing I couldn't do, and I didn't know I could do, was work with Russians who initially treated me as the enemy. And for forever, they all treated me as a spy, but they they didn't even know if they could trust my capabilities to Mm. work as an operator. And so, and because they only spoke Russian, they didn't speak any English. The biggest burden for me was to learn Russian and. Uh, I had failed, almost failed. I just passed French and Latin in in my school studies. Um, so, And I've always focused on technical subjects as my pastimes. And so going to Russia, I had to learn the Russian language. This was a huge, it is my greatest accomplishment, I would say. It's the, it's the biggest surprise in my career with the language, understanding what other people are thinking and their culture. That allowed me to have empathy for my Russian instructors, but more importantly for my Russian crew with whom I was going to spend five months on the Mir station. So when I got there, even though I hadn't trained with them and I had only met them a couple of times on earth in Houston, when I got to the the Mir station, I made every effort to speak Russian with them, to have tea with them, you know, because that's what Mm -hmm. they do. 
um, and uh, so and eat every meal with them. And sometimes my predecessors hadn't done that. I was aware that my other Americans hadn't done that. And uh, they valued it. And I just made the effort to be <laughs> sociable and uh, listen to them, you know, listen to what they say. Of course, I'm not speaking Russian so easily, so it's easier to be a listener when you're in a foreign <laughs> language. No, seriously, but when you're a foreign isn't language speaker. is that an speaker, advantage, though? That's almost an it, advantage. Because- Ellie, it's, it, it, I believe it's an advantage, especially when you're trying to build empathy and trust. You know, Mike, we have two more really important questions for you. You are definitely a demonstration of uh, resilience. Mm -hmm. What is the best piece of advice that you would offer someone who just received a rejection letter or didn't meet their goal or is looking to apply for their dream job and is skeptical uh, and worried? What piece of advice would you give them? The first thing I'd say to a person is, we all go through this. We all mm. go through this. We are with you. We know how you feel. The second one um, is, I know it doesn't feel like it right now, but uh, get a good night's sleep. <laughs> 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 and in the morning, think about other things you really like doing and focus on those. What happens is that when you focus on the things you really like doing in that second round of introspection, you start to realize that there are other jobs you might like to do. Um, and so it, that's true. It broadens that's a good you. Point. It broadens you. I mean, there's no simple, there's no easy answer. It doesn't fix you right away, but that's the approach I would, I recommend taking is deal with, deal with the loss, deal with the rejection, mm-hmm. get some sleep and refocus um, on you and refocus on what you're good at and what you like doing. And that could well confidence. be. Yeah, and that could be the people that you work with, you see. It could be focusing on the people. If you really like someone you work with, but you're applying for a different job, then all of a sudden you go, well, it's not so bad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that that's a good life lesson, right? When we could become very fixated on things that we have no control over. But the one thing we do have control over is how, how we spend our time, what we focus in on, and how we decide to grow as humans. So if you refocus on that and you stay you stay true to that, then it helps build that positive emotion and, and that positivity. Which is a mindset. Yeah, it is. Right? Which is mindset, which is something that we also have more control over than sometimes we think. And that's also a theme that I'm hearing in your story, Mike, is your mindset. You did not stop believing in yourself, even though I do really appreciate the acknowledgement of self-doubt moments. And that that's very human. But it's about doing things that you know that you're good at or that you're interested in learning and continuing to build your confidence in other ways that can enable you to be an even stronger candidate for that thing or that goal that you're trying to achieve. And Mike, we have a few fire round questions for you. Um, And we would love for you to just tell us the first thing that comes to mind when we ask you these questions. And Chris is going to kick it off for us. Right. All right. And so this is one of the things that you actually talked about in your story, but I want to understand, Mike, now, today, what do you do to experience joy? Joy is something to focus on when you have it, but I don't know that you create joy, right? So you have to spot it when it comes. And Ooh, for me, what's something that you spot? Yeah. It's, yeah. So, so for example, this morning in Colorado, it rained last night. It's the first rain we've had rather than snow. The ground is not covered in snow. The mountains are. And I opened the curtains and I had joy. 
because <laughs> the, the mounds were there with snow, but there was all this cloud rolling up and down, and you know, ground level is very, very dramatic. It's like an so anyway, it was that was joy. So, uh, so I think it's spotting joy when you have it. I don't know that you create it. I really appreciate that because one of the things that Ellie and I like to geek out about is um, how it takes effort to actually spot it. If you're not looking for it, you're going to miss it. Right, right. Because uh, the bad stuff is what our brain tends to focus on more. So I really appreciate that note. So, Mike, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? It's, it's a weird one to say, but a professor at, in Cambridge, um, he was my dean of – he's kind of like a mentor as well. Uh, he's 10 years older. I was my like 21, 22. I was very worried about what people thought of me. It goes back to the, you know, the fear of public speaking. Uh, and he, and he mm -hmm. said to me at some point, he said, you care way too much about what people think of you. I was thinking, well, of course I do. You know, it's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, he said, you should not worry. And he was kind of a hard ass. You know, he, he was, but some people didn't like him much as a senior tutor. They thought he gave too hard an advice. But he said, Mike, you need to stop worrying about what people think of you so much. What yeah. powerful advice that is, well, actually, because of what we talked about it's earlier. It's a measure. It's you know? a measure. I, I, you do need to think about what people think of you because that's the empathy, right? That's where you build trust. But it's that kind of whatever it is. It's that it's that social that social network <laughs> fear the, of what people think of you. Yeah, that's, don't that's seek the thing external you need to, validation. Yeah, yeah. You exactly. That's, that's, external validation. Ellie, Ellie, you, you, you've said it the best. Yeah, yeah. The don't best. use external validation to yeah. to determine your own self worth. So, Mike, our last question for you is: How can our listeners stay in touch with you and continue to follow you on your journeys? So I don't do so. I, I'm, uh, there's a lot of reasons why I don't do social media. Um, I mean, I follow it, but I don't post on it. And that's because it's over. Uh, to be quite honest, it's because it's overwhelming. It, it overwhelms is. me. Yeah, it overwhelms. I'm back me. to that I'm with you. validation yeah. thing. So I, I'm, I, I'm, over, yeah. I, I'm overwhelmed. So I, I don't respond to friend requests and things like that. But um, I'm about to write a book. Uh, so the book has been like ten years coming, and it's. I used to hate the title, but now after doing so much um, leadership classes, it's called An Astronaut's Guide to Success by Michael Fall and Chris Barber. Chris Barber's like my ghostwriter, but he's my colleague also in who, and out of our interactions over 10 years, we have a, uh, Chris has basically managed to write down a number of my experiences at NASA that are relevant to gaining the confidence learning from your mistakes and moving on to get happy to be successful. And that's why we call Chris called it an astronaut's guide to success. I went, Oh, come on. You know, I'm not really successful. He goes, yeah, you are. <laughs> so I think that's, the, I think we'll stick with that title and that should come out this year. Michael full. We really admire your resilience, your optimism, and thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for speaking with us and, and sharing some of your story with us and some of your life with us. Thank you, Ali. Thank you, Chris. And just, I want to wish everybody listening um, the best of luck, because I think luck is a, a huge part of life. And um, be as optimistic as you possibly can. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving us inspiration. And everybody, between now and next time, grow just a little bit further. Thanks. We'll be back again with Dr. Mike Fall. 
This has been a CVS Health production. This episode was produced and edited by Jed Ackerman with digital support from Eva Sharpeno. Listen, follow, and let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Grow Further podcast. See you next time. Thank you.